Welcome to a healthcare podcast by Virtual Health, an ongoing discussion on topics we feel are making a big impact on our individual and collective health. On the show, we engage with guests and listeners to explore and help clarify complex healthcare matters through active conversation. This is Ty McDonald, your host, and thanks for tuning in. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Today's episode is with Dr. Hans Williams, Director of Clinical Operations at Virtual Health. Hans is a doctorally trained registered nurse that specializes in behavioral change for chronically ill patient populations. And we're very happy to have Hans as a guest today. Here we go. Yeah, I think today would be fun just to talk about healthcare in general. And a lot of people are upset with the care that they're receiving. They're upset with the the cost of care, with the wait times, not being able to see the the provider that they want to see being fearful of, you know, getting older and not being able to afford, say, uh, a hip transplant or if they need some other type of serious operation. Right. People are worried about being overprescribed pharmaceuticals. You know, you, there's like a drug for hypertension. There's a drug for weight loss. There's a drug for hair loss. There's a drug to make your bones stronger. There's a drug to, you know, whatever, right? There's yeah. a drug for everything. Yeah. I think this is the point I'm trying to make. So we have all of these different issues right now in the healthcare system, and we're spending so much money on it, but not really seeing a lot of return for our, for our buck. You know, health, uh, you know, taxpayers here in the U.S. It's you know more than a quarter of our GDP goes towards healthcare spending, and a lot of our tax goes towards it. But you know we're not getting a lot in return, right? Yeah. You know we're having states uh, still deny Medicaid expansion, but we have all of these issues going on. We're throwing a lot of money at things, and nothing is yeah. ne- is necessarily working. So I thought it'd be cool just to have an open conversation sure. about perhaps why things aren't working and what those roadblocks are. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. And um, yeah, one, uh, one thing I would want to talk about is sort of how, how, we, how it got this way, sort mm-hmm. of broadly. But also what's interesting is that uh, the pricing, like the cost of care for the individual and the way that the business works is so, uh, so abnormal compared to any t- other type of business. Yeah. Because when you're... You go to the doctor. The doctor says, "Here, take you know this procedure, this these pills." Oh yeah, I don't know how much it's going to cost, um, but you're essentially buying something as a consumer. But you don't find out what it costs until you get the bill from the insurance company, and it could be, "Oh, those pills were you know three thousand dollars or whatever it was." Yeah, it's that like, that "Oh procedure. no, I was, wish I didn't have that." <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Or like yeah. that, you know, that fifteen minutes you spent uh, with an IV in your arm is like whatever thousand mm-hmm. dollars so there's no there's no clarity from the provider of what things are going to cost what they pay for it yeah well to begin i think the one word that you said that is the differentiator here is business mm-hmm. Healthcare as a business versus healthcare as something that is available to everyone that it is a god-given right everyone should have access to care right yeah. so when you, then you say business and consumer then you're moving away from the concept or the theoretical foundation of health as not a right but as a privilege right. so when you look at countries in Europe, for instance, right, where they have nationalized plans where there is essentially only one provider, one insurance company, which is the state. And all 
forms of health, you know, obviously they still have private companies and uh, other options, but it's given to all of their citizens, right? So for instance, my mom, she was born in Scotland, uh, you know, whenever she goes back and if she has an emergency, she's able to still go and receive care and services. Like I think she was back home uh, in Edinburgh about 12, 14 months ago. Mm-hmm. She had an allergic reaction to a cat. So she was seeing my grandma, uh, she, she had a flare up. She needed to go to the emergency to, emergency department um that might have actually been in glasgow but still it was you know somewhere in scotland you know and she goes there uh because they have a nationalized healthcare system and they've completely digitized all of their electronic health records she was able or the physician that was treating her in the emergency department was able to pull up her old original file that had been digitized from when she was born wow yeah you know allergies uh you know where like where she was born etc yeah so obviously a lot of that information was old and outdated but she still had a record yeah um so she received treatment she got some uh you know uh, glucocorticoid glucosteroid inhaler um you know some type of bronchodilator i guess and she paid maybe like one or two euros and like that was it yeah so she didn't even have to bother with traveling with travelers insurance or anything again to bring this back that's because of this fun this fundamental difference between how some countries think of healthcare as uh, a right yeah. versus here in the US we treat it as a privilege and in right. doing so it becomes commoditized yeah so it's a right it's a right in but it's it's paid for by heftier taxes or why does it work over there and not here yeah so that's a very good question um you know when you look at the sort of socio-cultural identity of countries like scotland for instance you know from my understanding uh the you know so they pay higher taxes um, so it, it so it, i guess to answer the question it's more of a cultural difference versus a health difference, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously there are health differences between the average Scottish person and the average American food, diet, you know, lifestyle and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but when it comes to why it works there versus why it might not work here, uh, you know, I, from my perspective, it's probably going to be for a couple different reasons. You know, first here in the U.S., we have more individuals. We have an older aging patient population, which Scotland and the U.K. also does have as well. But the sheer numbers is often cited as, you know, one source for why we wouldn't be able to necessarily nationalize because of the sheer number of individuals. And we also have, at this point in time, more chronically ill individuals that would require more care and more assistance. Um, You know, second, when we look at the healthcare system here, there's potentially thousands and millions of individuals that have jobs because of the complexity of our healthcare system. So if we were to completely nationalize the care delivery system and network and how it's done, most likely we'd also be removing a lot of jobs, Mm. which is an interesting point of view. Uh, you know, for instance, a lot of healthcare startups, the reason why there are so many healthcare startups is because that there's problems that wouldn't exist if we would have a simple healthcare system, right? We have all these startups and new ventures within healthcare that are trying to solve the complexities of what should be relatively simple. Um, 
So I think, you know, from my perspective, those are two interesting points that my mind immediately goes to just the sheer size of uh, the patient population here uh, in the U.S. And then also the degree of uh, chronicity, the the degree of chronicity. A lot of people with chronic illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of people with chronic illnesses. Lots of people with chronic illnesses, a lot more people, but also a lot more complex and regionally even community diverse uh, populations, mm-hmm. meaning that you know different types of people with different lifestyles, with uh, different backgrounds, different incomes, different education, uh, makes for the premise of a quote silver bullet that covers the entire country sort of um, elusive. Yeah. Yeah, but then the thing is, right, you think about the UK, they're also very diverse. They have yeah. a large migrant uh, population, you know, lots of individuals that come from the Middle East and Asia and South America and even here in North America, right? So they obviously have a very diversified patient population that they're trying to handle a wide range and variety of conditions that, uh, you know, you see different levels, uh, you know, the different intensities of certain types of diseases between ethnicities, right? Yeah. You know, just because of cultural differences or what you like to eat and what you like to do um, that we also see here in America, right? So it's certainly tricky in terms of why they've been able to do. And I I think maybe the fundamental issue comes down to these words that we like to talk about, like capitalism and socialism that are sort of these political hot topics of the enculturation of citizens in the UK. They're a lot more open to these ideas because obviously they're still very uh, capitalistic society. And, you know, they've been around thousands of years, uh, you know, their culture is very different than the U.S. So you would imagine that the U.S. would really be a leader in these sorts of things, right? You know, U.S. is powerhouse and economics and uh, all of these things that actually now aren't really turning out to be that great, right? We had the financial collapse that almost took out the whole uh, sort of financial system at a global scale. Um, but, you know, we like to tout ourselves as being the best, but, you know, we have some of the highest rates of infant mortality, even though we are, uh, uh, you know, we're a group of individuals here that have, uh, a combined wealth of, you know, more than the, probably the top three or four other countries. Right. right? So we have all of these resources, but we're still sick and ill. I think it just gets back to culture. Right. And so, which leads me to my next question, which is using an example of a society that charges more taxes to their citizens, but you get uh, you know, universal health care. Every citizen gets health care no matter what, and everyone's taxed higher, and that, mm-hmm. that pays for it. But spending isn't obviously the only thing, because we're spending a lot on it here, more than any other country, and we're having way worse outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So you bring up a good point. And when you look at the, so here we have, you know, a three or four tier healthcare system in the United States. So we have patients, people like us, we have per, we then have 
healthcare providers, so those that are delivering the care. Then we have payers, the insurance companies that are then trying to supplement the costs of care. Then we also have pharmaceutical companies. So we have these four Ps, patients, providers, payers, and pharmaceutical companies. The sort of four tier, or if you want to you know, leave out the pharmaceutical companies, a three tier healthcare system or sort of delivery network that enables care. Um, and when you look at other countries that have nationalized healthcare systems, there is no healthcare insurance companies, right? So in terms of the high costs, from my understanding, a lot of that is because of these additional layers of care delivery that we have set up with, say, for instance, insurance companies. What I think the next model is going to be where we could essentially group together providers, payers and pharmaceutical companies all into one type of organization are all in like the same group or structured, yeah. like the same business, right? Shared incentives. Yeah. Well, not only share incentives, but have them be the same organization. Mm. So imagine if you had a healthcare company or like a, a hospital. So we're here in New York City. Let's take Mount Sinai. Yeah. Say you have Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, and part of this already exists, but you know, Mount Sinai might then also act as the insurance company or like, you know, for instance, Kaiser Permanente. Yeah, I was going to say Kaiser. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, doing, yeah. Right? yeah. So, yeah. you know, these are called integrative care delivery networks yeah. um, or, or integrative care networks, uh, IDNs or ICDNs. And what they do is, you know, they provide you the healthcare services, but then they also provide you the insurance. So then they're able to potentially provide you things at a cheaper rate. Yeah. But now the next level from my understanding or from my imagination that I could easily see happening is we then include the pharmaceutical companies into that mix as well. So now imagine that Kaiser Permanente is also developing the drugs. Mm -hmm. So if Kaiser Permanente is developing the drugs, and if they also provide the healthcare providers, the nurses, social workers, physicians, et cetera, and they are covering parts of those costs like a normal insurance company would, they might hypothetically be able to drop costs dramatically. Mm. So they've already shown some uh, over the, you know, so Kaiser Permanente started in, I believe it was the late 80s. I could be wrong. Let's check this out. So how, how does that work? Like how, do, how are the different parties paid in that scenario? Oh, geez, Kaiser's founded in 1945. Wow. Yeah. And they're kind of recognized as leading the charge in that respect. Yeah, yeah. But can you explain to me how, how the different groups are paid in that scenario versus the, the existing scenario where those three entities are all separate? Yeah, so with how things would work, so let's just say I'm a Kaiser Permanente member. Yeah. If I'm a Kaiser member, I pay Kaiser a monthly insurance premium that then allows me to go see any of their in-network providers. And yeah. I could then pay a additional premium on top of that to maybe see out-of-network providers. So in-network providers are those that are part of the Kaiser Permanente community. Thank you. And then And that means that Kaiser says these these doctors are or service providers are in our network, aka we will pay them if they perform uh, services on you. Whereas if they're out of network, maybe they won't. And then you'll have to pay for it. 
Yeah, right? yeah. More or less? Yeah, 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 more or less, that's correct. And if they're out of network, maybe they still could potentially cover it, but there'll need to be some sort of process that's involved where I send the forms and the papers that need to be filled out by that provider that I saw or that provider's hospital or physician group. And then that gets sent to Kaiser and then Kaiser might approve that claim or deny. Mm. Um, so I, I may or may not see the money. So, but anyway, getting back to if I'm, you know, how, how all of this works, right? Yeah. So I'm a Kaiser patient. I pay my monthly fees. I could then see any doctors within Kaiser. <coughs> um, and it's simple and pretty straightforward. So instead of having to, you know, say pay Aetna or Humana, or Athena, um, United Healthcare Group, a fee, <clears throat> and then uh, sort of receive approvals and have to navigate then also with a hospital system that then might only take certain types of insurance. There's just additional steps that I would need to jump through. So it's again, just trying to, you know, and I think our listeners would probably understand, is just trying to streamline that process, right? Yeah. So instead of having to fill out forms by two or three different entities, you know, by the doctor and their hospital or their clinic that they're associated with, and then the insurance company in which then the doctor needs to bill those two, yeah. uh, it becomes a lot more complicated, yeah. a it'd lot be, more complicated. It'd be nice for the, uh, for the patient, the consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And to then bring back in the pharmaceutical companies. So we have, you know, Kaiser right now, that's been a leader in this, you know, we were just looking it up. They started in 1945. Mm -hmm. And the one random tidbit that I remember before that, they, they were, uh, or originally was a cement company that it was just maybe Permanente and then maybe Kaiser came in later or something. I'd need to double check this, but they started off as a cement company. Then apparently in 1945, they started uh, with the healthcare work and you know their model of care, others have tried to replicate it and some have been successful and some haven't, uh, which is, you know, we could always talk about later in terms of why that might potentially be. But what Kaiser hasn't done yet is they haven't really tried to create their own drugs. And I've got a funny feeling if they were to try and create, say, I don't know, hypertension is a bad example because there's already a ton of cheap drugs for blood pressure management. But let's say they come up with a, you know, some new type of cancer drug. Uh, a lot of cancer meds cost a ton of money, right? You know, these... Uh, immunotherapies or new drugs that are genetically modified just for your specific type of cancer and how your body might potentially react to it um, costs a lot of money. But if Kaiser were to be able to create these drugs and then they already have the network of providers in which they can inform those providers of, so then there's no need for marketing and ad campaigns and the you know hundreds of millions of dollars that then go to educate physicians on yeah. the potential use of it. And there'd be more transparency of cost too. Yeah, like there'd be a humongous, uh, well, at least hypothetically, there yeah. would be a lot more transparency in the cost of the drug and being able to deliver it at a more cost-friendly price point, yeah. you know, uh, cause like the reason why all these drugs, you know, might cost $10,000 a month or $20,000 a month is because, you know, 
uh, the big pharma companies, you know, uh, Merck or whatever, the, uh, they spend five, ten billion dollars in the in the development of these drugs across the period of ten to twenty, thirty years. Yeah. Right. So it's not a cheap process by any means of the imagination, and perhaps that's another big issue that we need to talk about as a society and like a culture is how can we help the insurance companies create these medications for a cheaper at a, at a, at a cheaper rate, right? Yeah. You know, can the government further subsidize some of these explorations that the big pharma companies are looking into, whether it's like a heart disease, kidney disease, you know, stroke to be able to bring down these medications. So even if you don't have insurance, maybe you could still pay for it with the, you know, paycheck that you're getting, right? right. And not have to go broke. Always appreciate it, Hans. Nice chatting with you. Talk to you soon. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Todd.